You're listening to The Local Maximum, Episode 75. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. You have reached another Local Maximum. All right, you're not going to want to miss today's show. I always try to find the perfect hook at the beginning of the show. And in this case, there's just so much stuff to mention, you know, new ways of thinking about things that I worry I won't do my interview with Jeffrey Tucker uh, justice today, unless you listen to the whole thing. You can always tell when I'm reading one of uh, Jeffrey Tucker's articles or books, I'm often just like kind of chuckling. I have to like nudge the person next to me to tell them uh, what I just learned. And um, I enjoyed his past books like Bit by Bit, which mentioned Foursquare, which made me very happy, um, and also Jetson's World with uh, about modern technology. Uh, the essays in his newest book, The Market Loves You, ranges from how to become talented, how to handle leaving and getting fired from jobs, but also we learn about the history of the cash register and better pillows and mattresses. And you know, I know what you think listening to the podcast. It's not uh, part of an ad. Do you actually learn about the history of, of mattresses? Uh, and uh, there's an actual discussion of what's going on. Also, things like, you know, what has the government done to our bathrooms and our gas cans and our showers and our straws uh, and new solutions in toilet plungers and trains? Why pimps wear trains? That's what, what not trains. Why pimps wear chains? That's one that I had to mention. I was reading that in the train. Uh, in the subway, and I had to like tell everyone in the subway. <laughs> and a really funny story about a, a chicken stick, too, which we'll be discussing at the end today. He also um, talks a lot about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, which we'll get into as well. We start off talking about that, but that's not what we talk about the whole time. All the show notes will be at localmaxradio.com slash 75. All right. Now, before we begin today, I have a little bit of news for you folks. You might want to sit down for this one, because... Way back in episode 52, I announced with much fanfare that I am leaving Foursquare after seven and a half years. Wow. I did kind of a walkthrough memory lane on that show of all the stuff I worked on when I was there. And well, it turned out that the grass wasn't greener. And now I'm going to return to Foursquare today, Monday, July 15th, 2019. Now, it... uh, won't be in my previous role. It's going to be an entirely different role. As you remember, I spoke to Dennis Crowley a few times on this show and in episode 66 most recently. You'll actually hear a clip of episode 66 today during the interview. I'm going to be joining uh, his innovation lab, the innovation lab at Foursquare, just to build a bunch of products and get them out into the wild. That means in the hands of you guys and gals as much as possible. I don't know how long I'll be doing it for, but I miss, I kind of miss pushing products and features out with the mission to really make a splash and have people really love it, really find value in it. And I've been missing this in, in my job in the last year or so, except for this podcast, of course. And so I look forward to getting back to that. Um, and this theme actually fits in really well with today's guest because I spoke to Jeffrey for an hour. We got a chance to discuss the nature of innovation. Why do people do it? What are some misconceptions about it? So I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Jeffrey A. Tucker is editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research. He is the author of many thousands of articles in the scholarly and popular press and eight books in five languages. Most recently, The Market Loves You. Jeffrey Tucker, 
Welcome to the show. Welcome to the local maximum. Well, thank you. And thank you for coming out here for me. I, that means the world to me. You know, I, um, it, it, I expected a nice drive, but I, it was the most <laughs> pleasant drive possible because yeah. I came up from Connecticut. And uh, so already I was out of the city and it wasn't it, it wasn't too long of a drive. It was just it was perfect weather. I mean, I don't want to be outside all day in the heat, but it was like perfect for driving. It was yeah, just unbelievable. Yeah. So it's really great to be here at the uh, uh, I keep on getting the ordering of the words. No, wrong, but American okay. Enterprise. No, it's it's it's, yeah. it's it's think of four extremely boring words. OK. American Institute for Economic Research. Oh, American <laughs> Institute for Economic research, yeah. right? A I E R. That's right. Okay. A I E R. And uh, it's 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 interesting because because people do get confused about it because it is a you know any marketing specialist would say that's a terrible brand. Shouldn't you change <laughs> it to something like Economify or something like that? Yeah. But you know, in a, in, a, in a time when everybody's got a snazzy brand and a and a and a cool logo and all this nonsense, we were founded in 1933. And yeah. we're kind of boring, uh, principled but boring. And you know, it's what's funny about that is actually there's a certain marketing appeal to that alone. Like <clears throat> it's such an implausible name, American Institute for Economic Research. Like nobody would come up with that and suggest it today. And that yeah. makes it actually especially interesting. I think some sometimes it kind of makes people ask, you know, what's that? And like, yeah. People ask me like the local maximum. What does that mean? And I can go in. Well, my name's Max, but also like local. I do location data, but local maximum is a is a mathematical term. It's a, I get, it's a, it's a term about design. I go all into it. Many layers of meaning I, there, right? Yeah. But, so we were, American Institute for Economic Research was, I guess, the second research institute founded in the United States after Brookings. Okay. So it's really, and it came about in 1933, which is a difficult year, as you know. I mean, yeah. New Deal was, was full on. Well, FDR was just elected, really. Yeah. And uh, money, money was reformed, and the devaluation took place, and E.C. Harwood was, was at MIT. Is this the original place for it, or is this... No, we moved here in 1946. Okay. It could be. I was like... When I say <laughs> we, I don't mean me. Yeah. <laughs> but it does feel like the original place. Originally, this estate was owned by the Pearsons, uh, sort of a Gilded Age, um, how would you say, yeah, rich guy. And yeah. he built this estate in 1904. And in 1917, he and his wife were two of 25 Americans who died on the Lusitania. Wow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so then it was taken over by the Coonleys, and then they went broke in the Great Depression. So it kind of stayed empty for 10 years. And then um, AIR moved here in 1946. Yeah. I, well, I, I wasn't going to get into this, but one thing I like to do is sometimes is like uh, on a weekend trip, I like to tour you know, old houses for, mm. uh, from, from rich people. I did the, uh, the Guggenheims uh, last summer. And it's, I like it. It's like, um, Okay, I'll never. I probably won't have a house like this, but it might give me some ideas mm-hmm. on, like, uh, you know, what I can do. It's like, oh, well, they have a library, and maybe one day when I get out of my one-room studio, I'll have a library. <laughs> well, it's delightful yeah. for me because there's, you know, it's a forty-room mansion, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. with endless books and endless everything. We've got an Edison phonograph and all kind of fun things oh, and uh, some original works of Albert Buer and so on. And so I like on. to see that after, but, but I don't even have to own them. I can just enjoy them. Yes, yes. <laughs> 
sometimes that's the better way to go. It is. I'm at like a, a, a minimalist, you know, when it comes to stuff I own. Because, you know, I, I kind of agree with the, with the hipster theory that, you know, the more you own, the more you weigh down. Mm. But, which is a goofy thing to say sitting in this, this opulent headquarters here. But I do feel yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I was thinking on the way up, you know, how, how nice the drive is. And I know I was reading your article in, in your recent book about the train ride up here and how that's a nice way to travel. Um, yeah, from New York to Hudson is, is yeah. wow, what a trip, you know, um, on, the, on the Hudson River like that. And it, it's just your mind goes back to colonial times and, and the steadiness of the train and just the look of the scenery outside. You never see that in a car, really, because you, you can't look, you know, all the time like that. And the car's always going faster and slower and everything. The train's this steady motion. And yeah. It's, it's, it's easy it's to fall asleep. It's delight. easy to read. Yeah. yeah. And then you've got great internet and, 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 and often the, the bar is open. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's great. I mean, so you're very positive about this stuff. So I'm about to take it back a little because I like that train. But, uh, and I would take that up here next time. But the subway in New York City is really wearing me down recently. Oh. And I, um, I can't tell if it's actually getting worse or if everything else is getting better and it's looking much worse by comparison. It does seem to be, in but, general, getting better, doesn't it? I mean, I remember going there in like, like, the, like the late 80s and thinking, oh, this is a nightmare. I can't. Of course, the traffic sure. is still terrible, but otherwise the city is delightful. The subway I'm afraid of, so I don't even go into it. Because yeah. so, I, I get confused with all the directions and everything. But, you know, the thing used to be owned privately. And right. You can, you can see... Um, that there is a history of elegance there, but it's just so covered over by soot and nonsense and mismanagement. Yeah, yeah. It's every time. It's I, I, I. The only solution I can think of is just move close enough to walk to work. I know people who have done that because oh, now man. I'm holding on to the bar in the morning for 20 minutes, and you know, look, I'd prefer a 40 minute drive, like you know, but to that, yeah. but you know, it's uh, and there are people coming in, they're giving you shows that you never asked for, never oh, wanted, or asking, uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah no, close to work is a great ideal, yeah. isn't it? I mean, if you can achieve that, yeah. then you're in heaven. Yeah, yeah. Um, I there's all these trade offs when looking for a place to live. It's I mean, it's an interesting economic problem because last time I did it, I was like, well, I could live a little further and get something a little more inspiring, or I could be where I am now, where it's kind of grungy, but I'm closer to work, and it's it's always. Uh, it's always a multi-dimensional trade-off. It's never like, you know, how economists often put it like a single-dimensional curve. What's your, you know, what's your demand versus supply as you go? No, no, no. There's like hundreds of different variables that I'm looking at when I'm looking for a place to live. Yeah, that's right. And New York is particularly vexed with the, with the problem of um, uh, public decision-making over, over uh, what is really essentially a very small space and this gigantic crowds and so now that i mean my impression is that that the the, the, the streets are innavigable actually that's that's my impression i may in, be wrong innavigable in what way like well you, you can't drive on them um and not you know, the, easily and and it's always confusing because uh, you yeah. know like outsiders will go oh i'm gonna stay at this hotel and the place i need to be is only a mile away and so yeah you think oh that's just a hop and a skip so they call an uber yeah you're lucky to find the Uber. And then you can be stuck in it for 45 minutes. I mean, it's just it's happened to it's, me. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it, a crazy world. You know, what's been a game changer is uh, the, the bike shares, the city bike for me. I don't oh. drive it. I don't ride it in the street, though. Some people do. I'm like, no, I don't want to die. But I'll ride it, um, you know, 
along the river. So the uh, this is an U- the Ubers with the bikes. They're called jump bikes. Ooh, a city bike. City it's bike. City bike. Yeah, okay. I basically. Is it a I, company or? Um, I think it's a private company. I think they um, they have some relationship with the city, like they're contracted yeah. by the city or something like that. But I think it's a private company out of Montreal. Okay. And basically, I just stick my key. Actually, do I have my? No, I don't have my key with me. I stick my key into the kiosk there, and then the bike just releases and I can ride it wherever I want. And then I just stick it back in when I'm done. And, and you're charged for how long you're gone? Um, no, it's a, it's $200 for the entire year. I can just oh. do it for free or not free, but after that it's free. I think that you need it. Yeah. And you need it for 30 minutes. You have a 30 minute limit, but it's no problem. If you take it for 30 minutes, you just plug it in and then plug it back out. So long as you can find a spot, but mm. I've got an app with all the maps and where it's well, available. Nowadays too. I yeah. mean, in Atlanta they have, uh, three scooter companies, one yeah. bike company. I mean, it's just. I was a, reading about that in yeah, your book too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is fascinating. Like, that sounds I mean, like I mean, a good idea. The markets see, are solving their transportation problem. It's yeah. glorious. Yeah, I, I know. I now, I know you said the book be patient, but I'm like, I want it now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I really could use it. Well, yeah, because also uh, yeah. kind of uh, obsessed with regulations, you know, and everything that comes there. Everybody, you know, the city council has to it's, like approve it. They. Know. And they restricted Ubers last year. And yeah. so overnight, Uber went up 50% in price. Oh. It was like all of a sudden now it's $30 to take me to Grand Central. Oh, and it's, so that is just so yeah. sad. You know, those that's a case of regulation that seems like it has a good rationale. It's like there's too many cars in the street. You know, people, or we need to somehow restrict this. You know, nobody's able to get anywhere because everybody's now a taxi driver, you know? Right. And then everybody's feeling very sad for all the taxi drivers and the medallion calamity and so on. And so you, you look at that and you think, well, eh, regulation here, it's not going to be so bad. But sure enough, you pass the regulation and you're going to get unanticipated consequences that are really terrible, like suddenly sky-high prices. And, you know, it, it just ends up hurting everybody. The government can't do anything right. Yeah, it's a, it did, didn't even fix the congestion problem, I right. would say. I, mean, I wouldn't say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so um, we haven't even gotten to the... This is going to be a good discussion. I don't know how long it could go, but we haven't even gotten to anything I have written down here yet. So the first point I wanted to make is I actually saw you speak live at one point, and that was back at the 2015 uh, Bitcoin conference, North American Bitcoin conference that was in Miami. This one was... I'm trying to think the year. That might have been the first year that I spoke there, if I'm right. Yeah. Or was it 2014? Well, do you recall whether this is the the outrageously decadent conference where everybody's driving around in Lamborghinis and that kind of thing? Or was if it, they was were, that... I was not involved okay, in that. I but it could have been. Look, I, all I did was been... go to the conference hall. So okay, if someone so that might was... have been 2014. I, honestly, well, if you look at the price of Bitcoin, that probably was the 2014. Yeah, because uh, and then then of course it collapsed and everybody's yeah. depressed and I'm like, wait, this it, was the the depressed. Okay. Time. That's this was, I was going to cheer myself up because the price was so low. Well, there have been waves of this nonsense. You know? I know, it's like I know. it's like it goes up and everybody's like, "Oh, I'm a genius! I'm a genius!" And then it goes down and people are like, "Oh, I'm an idiot! Why did I fall for for magic internet money? This is silly!" And and everybody's sad. And then it goes back up again. And and then they laugh at their friends for being sad, even though they were among the sad, and so on. It's, it's just, look, I've been I've yeah. been involved in the sector since it was fourteen dollars. So I've just seen rounds and rounds and rounds of this, and. You know, the most recent one was, uh, well, I guess, um, 2017. 17. Th- th- that was the first one where my like friends and family were starting to really ask about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it reached 
briefly reached, I guess, almost twenty thousand dollars. But it was the run up yeah. was like this parabolic rise that lasted like three weeks or something. And I had friends of mine calling me up, telling me, you know, I'm rethinking whether or not I should ever work again because clearly I can Oof. get rich. You know, this kind of. And I thought, hmm, yeah, <laughs> we're gonna have a problem. And it fell, I guess, at a total of something like eighty-five percent from its from its height. But I think the January of of the previous year, the price was only like a thousand dollars, if I'm right. remembering correctly. So yeah, because uh, I, I remember that because it had just reached its previous all-time high, like at the end of 2016. Yeah, it was. Everyone's like, okay, we're 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 back now. Woof. Yeah, we can hang out here for a minute, but that didn't happen. No, no, and I remember perfectly predicting the first $1,000, which is I recall was in December 2013. Yeah. And then it fell back down to like 350 or even lower. And um, I, I, it's very difficult for me to take all this, this nonsense uh, too seriously about the yeah. prices because, you know, I, I got in at, at 14 and then it went to 30 and everybody was screaming that this is a crazy bubble and that sort of thing. Now, I remember thinking at the time, well, I don't know. It seems to me that whatever price it is right now is the right price for whatever reason. Markets know these things. And why do you think you know something the market doesn't know? I mean, that's pretty arrogant. Um, but I remember thinking at the time, well, once it gets over $100, then everybody will become a believer. Um, uh, but it got over a hundred dollars, and and the same people who were skeptical were skeptical then too, and then and then uh, went up to a thousand dollars, and I thought, oh, now that's it. Then it crashed down to three hundred fifty. People were like, oh, see, it's a scam. But you know, what does that even mean? Three hundred fifty dollars. I remember when it was fourteen. That's, yeah, three hundred fifty dollars struck me as outrageously yeah. high. And that's not like twenty years ago. Like back in my day, it was a nickel. That was like <laughs> just a couple years yeah, ago. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so these people, and and so when it recently fell from twenty thousand dollars down to I guess at a low of again, I think it was a low of like thirty five hundred. Um, people once again. I mean, the Wall Street Journal. You know that. Bitcoin is dead. You know the the, the obituaries yeah. start coming out all Always. the time, and it's like guys. You really think $3,500 is dead? I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I, I was in it $14. I mean, yeah. and, and when it hit 30, people were screaming, it's a bubble. And, well, and that's that's exactly what you said in 2015. That was my takeaway. Oh. To $200 were totally fine. And I was like, I hope this guy's right. <laughs> I was like, I just, because I wasn't... <laughs> You know, it's just a, people's uh, thinking is so short term on this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I have, there's a little story that I can slightly tell you. When I, my first boom bust, you know, first time you experience it is, it is like a trauma, especially yeah. if you haven't been involved in markets. Yeah. And a lot of people who are involved in, in crypto world have never been involved it, in crypto It's always so different before. when you say, theoretically, this is how I'm going to feel and this is what I'm going to do than when you're actually there. Oh, for sure. And I'm just slightly making up numbers here, but um, like the first time in 2013, it might have been the summer of 2013, let's say it went up to $250. But the people at the time were screaming at me that I was, because I was like, one of the very first legitimate kind of like known writers in an economic space that actually came out and said, hey, this is a real deal. And I got trolled so hard. People were like, what is wrong with you? You're giving up your whole career. You're sacrificing for, all your intellectual integrity magic for, for, for this stupid thing. And I remember thinking, well, maybe that's right, but I don't think so. I think there's something to this. And then the price began to fall. And it fell, and it was like 200 and then it was like a 
190, and then it was like 160. And I remember just sweating it out. And by the way, I never wrote an article that said, okay, guys, this is going to the moon. I never said that. I was yeah. just impressed with it as a technology and grateful for the price run up because I was drawing public attention to it. But yeah. I was ne- I've never been this guy like predicting, you know, uh, million dollar Bitcoin or whatever. Although, yeah. you know, that could happen. Yeah. And, but nonetheless, once you start saying favorable things about uh, Bitcoin back in those days, then everybody kind of assumed that you were giving investment advice, which I never did. And so then everybody says, why are you telling people to buy Bitcoin? I'm like, well, not really. But um, I kind of began to believe that I had. And it's like yeah, so yeah. many people had accused yeah. me of this that I began to think that I had. Yeah. And so then I began to feel bad and sweating it out and, and calling up a friend, it was a, 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 an OG from way back, it just started laughing and said, look, why don't you just leave the office, go grab a martini, enjoy the, the ride. You have to decide, do you believe in this technology or not? Because if you don't, then bail. If you do, then stay in. And uh, that was good advice for me. And I rode that one out just fine, although it traumatized me. It truly did. But then the next... You know, the next run-ups and run-downs, you know, weren't, weren't even a thing for me. And, yeah. so, and so for the 2017, you know, I, the people were writing the most outrageous things, you know, and I just laughed it off. In, in what? During the run-up? Uh, well, the, during, the, during the bust. I during mean, during the, the run-up, everybody's, yeah. every, you know, everybody's equally crazy, but the bust happened. Yeah. And then people were, were uh, once again coming after me. Oh, yeah. look at you uh, having robbed in multitudes with your bad advice. <laughs> Everybody's calm down. But the other thing is that people are so short-term. And you looked at the chart, and it's kind of flat, 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 flat. And it's like up, 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 up. And then, and then, then it's through the roof. You know, that's yeah. when it hit 20,000. And then it just crashes back down again. You look at that, and you think, well, look at that. Yeah. That is a disaster. But... You're, for some reason, we're, we're denied the uh, uh, imagination to be able to see what that chart would look like if it came back and went to 30,000. Right. Or 50,000, 100,000. Honestly, if you look at the log chart, that doesn't look that crazy. That's right. Yeah. And I look back now at the big you know, bust that I experienced in 2013, 2014, 2015, and so on and so on. And they barely even show up. Yeah, you know, on the charts. Whereas yeah, at on the, the linear charts, especially the yeah. linear charts looked terrible. Yeah, and now it just looks like well, that was clearly irrelevant. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just looks like I, yeah, maybe if I take out my magnifying glass, <laughs> I can see that. But we don't, so. <clears throat> we don't think of like. It's funny, the human mind has a hard time coming to terms with two things, uh, the future and the uncertainty of the future. And, and, mm. and, and those things are just very difficult for us. We only sort of know what we know for sure. And we only believe in what we know for sure. But the only thing we know for sure is the history. We only know the past for sure. And, and so that's what we bank on. But, but actually, the great magic and mystery of the world is embedded in this this dark glass of the future, you know, of, of the uncertainty and the surprise. And that's where the, the real progress of, of humanity is, is embedded. It's, it's in that capacity to learn from the past and then, and then build this future through risk and uncertainty. And, and that's where we get all screwed up. Yeah, I think some, sometimes, well, sometimes maybe I'll speak for myself, like you have this mental model or a lot of people have this mental model where progress is just, okay, I'm going to make a bunch of calculations and I'm going to say, this is how we make progress. And that's the answer. But that's right. in reality, that's, and, and 
that might be the way we just think naturally. Like it might be hard to, even when you know that's not true, it might be hard to get yourself out of that. No, I think but, maybe in the, my 2014 speech, I talked about this, but I went back and looked at uh, the headlines during the years of um, the building of the great railroads in American history. Okay. And all the headlines were terrible. Yeah. It's like about crashes. This is uh, not going anywhere. Yeah. Stock market <laughs> frauds, people printing stock certificates, scam artists, you know, uh, go, going into a town telling everybody that uh, there's going to be a railroad coming through and pillaging people's property. And it was like, like, that's still what we learn about. And, and instantly, <laughs> yeah, it's still happening. <laughs> You'd think it was the worst thing that ever happened. Yeah, yeah. The then, you know, over the course of 30 years or whatever, train travel or the travel, the distance to, to, to traverse the, the U.S. was reduced, you know, by 90, 90%, you know. So uh, trains benefited us immensely. But there was never a headline that said something like, what used to take you three months is now going to take you three days. Mm. Nobody ever said that because yeah. it's, it's too long a frame, time frame. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, getting back to crypto for just a second, I mean... It's hard to, you know, yes, it still can't probably be used by the average person every day, but it's hard to have imagined five years ago when you say like, well, you know, Facebook will be building one with the Visa and MasterCard and trying to compete. I mean, that would have been crazy. You're so right about that. And I'm, I'm fascinated. Well, actually, nobody imagined stable coins five years ago. You know, yeah, that by itself was just something that was unimaginable that that crypto would build up such a, a gigantic capital yeah. reserves that you would, in effect, have private companies creating their own banks. Yeah. Uh, sufficient to back their own crypto and use blockchain technology to eliminate counterparty risk. I mean, that of their own trading. I mean, that was something that nobody imagined possible when it first happened was like two years ago. Um, people were really worried it was a scam. You know, there's a lot of concern yeah. about well, that. We, I, even I couldn't, like, I can't, I don't have time to, like, read the code. I mean, I might have a chance to understand it at least, but, like, I, I haven't had time to, like, really read the code. No, I've had to rely on reading other people and waiting it out. And oh, sure. Seeing, and everybody's okay. got different opinions. And every time it dies and comes back, I'm like, okay. Uh, when that happened a few times, I was like, okay. This is something that is is not actually dying. And if I can just uh, say something else that uh, uh, bothers me, um, just that sense of certainty you get in the crypto Twitter sphere, which is absolutely toxic. I don't know if you follow what goes on. In, I I shouldn't, but I do. So I wish, yeah, I, it's so shocking. But like, like I understand the fork that happened in. What am I thinking? Is it 2017? I guess it yeah. was when yeah. uh, the scaling problem became untenable. Right. And the uh, first fork of Bitcoin came out. Bitcoin which, and Bitcoin Cash. So they became the Bitcoin two. Cash, which right now is I think running at like 425 dollars. Yeah. And people are like, oh, it's it's going to zero. It's a to failed coin. It's a scam coin. So, you know, again, if you've been in Bitcoin since it was 14 dollars. I'm looking at four hundred twenty-five dollars and thinking, yeah. this is crazy. This is a crazy high price. And you know, it's apples to apples because they have the same number. Of, they both have twenty-one million total coins. They yeah. both have a, a, a similar number out there. But this is—I interviewed um, Christian Lundqvist, one of the, my first interviews on the podcast. He's a friend of mine who is who works in Ethereum, and he said, "Yeah, you know, we've had a fork 
these forked coins, for some reason, end up sticking around way longer. Like, they just end up sticking around for, forever, it seems well, like. Well, that's right. There's an Ethereum closet, isn't there? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and it's, which is still very actively it's traded. It's smaller, but it's, it's still used, and some, yeah. some people use it. It's, um, well, it's surprising. This is I don't think people understand. I mean, it's very I don't understand. Like, the yeah. maximalist crowd, which I don't want to be too hard on because a lot of them are friends of mine, but... I think I think there's a, an aspect of all this that people want the one right solution. You know, they want one product that they think that everybody should use. Since the network and we're going to get the right thing and, and that's surely Bitcoin and nothing else matters. But that is actually not the way the market works. You know, when you come up with a new product and it's a freely uh, competitive environment where there's free entry and exit, you know, um, you're going to get ongoing uh, competition. Uh, yeah, it's 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 ridiculous. It's like somebody invented the shoe, and everybody said, "Well, that's good. You know, let's come up with the one shoe that we're going to distribute to all of humanity." Well, <laughs> that's dumb. Everybody has different needs for different shoes, and there's innovations and all that kind of stuff. Markets produce a multiplicity of goods, and I think it's true in the crypto space too. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's hard to say what will happen. Like Bitcoin has a pretty high market dominance. It might. I mean. Staying, if we stay the course, it'll still have dominance, but you'll still have all these other coins going up and sure, down and doing sure. all sorts of interesting things. Um, I keep getting told, oh, some other thing is going to overtake it. I'm a little skeptical on that one, but yeah, yeah. I am too, um, mainly because of the network effects and um, uh, the tr- the trading pair. I mean, Bitcoin is in effect the uh, is in effect the how would you say the reserve currency of the crypto space, right? Which means there has to be a crypto space in order yeah, to get yeah, that to yeah. happen. Just like the dollar works for the world world, world currency, uh, it, it's that way with Bitcoin in the, in the crypto world. And so I think its dominance is going to persist for a very long time. But you know, I can't say for sure that it's gonna it's gonna last forever. And I certainly don't agree with the people who claim that's the one true money. I think it's really weird of people who claim this because before Bitcoin was invented in 2008 to 2009, um, nobody, I mean, there were very few people around that even imagined something like that would be possible, just a yeah. handful of visionaries. And so then you'd think that the great lesson of Bitcoin would be something like, we don't know. Yeah. We don't know <laughs> for sure. But instead, yeah, yeah, it's like, well, it. now we know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, Okay, so let's uh, let's get into your latest book because I have not. Um, well, <laughs> it's been it's, it's a longer time than I thought. Uh, all right, so you called your latest book uh, "The Market Loves You" and why you should love it back. Yep. I've seen uh, two main ways of defending free markets in the past. There's kind of the idea that the market is the most efficient system. You could talk about like it's the optimal economic output, and then there's also like the moral argument: you're not forcing anyone to trade or work. And those are good points to make, but as the title suggests, you've taken kind of an alternate route in talking about markets. Yeah. And I've even I've noticed this like in your past writings. Yeah. So would you say that's correct? Yeah, How did I you would. stumble upon uh, I, I, I've never framed it the way you did just now, but yes, that's exactly right. And, and the reason is I think, <clears throat> well, I get tired of the way people mischaracterize markets because actually, in fact, they're the main venue by which we express... Uh, uh, familiarity, affection, uh, friendship, and uh, creativity, and I would say uh, love, too. And and so uh, I'm not sure when it first occurred to me, but I started doing this like mental experiment. Like I would go into a new city and say, wow, do I like this place? And 
so you, to answer the question, what do you look at? You look at the grocery stores. You look at the convenience stores. You look at the housing market. You look at uh, the center of town with bustling restaurants. And you see, you look at market exchange. And if it's lively and beautiful, then you make a decision based on that. And then I began to imagine the same spaces in absence of the market. Now, just think about any city where you live and imagine that city without the market and imagine what would happen to it. It would become depressing and, uh, uh, and people would be mad at each other. You would be less happy. Um, you wouldn't. You, <laughs> there you know. are some areas in New York where I've seen that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I began to rethink uh, this, this, this matrix of exchange in less technical terms and more in terms of uh, our desire to work together, to cooperate with each other, to find value in each other, and to be around people who value us. That is a hugely important thing in your life and mine and in everybody's. The main thing we want is to have some sense that we're being valued. And the market is precisely the way that we get that affirmed every single day. And it's especially interesting to me how <clears throat> markets, so much of the benefit of markets come from not just people we work with or people we directly exchange with, but from people we've never met who are busily working on making things for us all over the world. And that's where the, the mystery and the magic of markets really come, come in. It's that sort of anonymity of love uh, that is so powerful to me. Yeah, so if I could say it a different way, tell me if you agree, it's sort of like there's the kind of the economic argument and the moral argument, but yours seems a lot more personal. Like, I'm not just playing SimCity and saying, okay, let's have all these guys go in a free market and see what they do. No, what is it like to actually be a participant? Because yeah. people are going to have to be a participant and deal with other people. And said, sometimes not every interaction is going to be great. But no. You know. Of course not. But it's but any more than every interaction in, in, in our normal course of our human lives is is great. But so many of our interactions come down to market exchange. And, yeah. And and that involves money, it involves investment, it involves speculation and creativity and really often heroism. And and um, and my point about love, that sounds like a little exaggerated, but yeah. actually um, so much of the entrepreneurial spirit that's a, that that is associated with new products and and uh, uh, new institutions and new ways of doing things is driven by uh, a passion by a single individual who imagines a future that is different from the current world and you really do it's like St Paul's you know rendering what faith is. It's like the evidence of things unseen. So a great entrepreneur imagines a world in which everyone's consuming his or her product. And that is a, a, it's a kind of insanity that you can compare to falling in deep love. You know, where, you, where if, if that's ever happened to you, the world seems new. You know, uh, you feel completed as a person. You know, um, uh, the birds are singing more beautifully than ever before. You're suddenly impressed with the flowers. It, 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 it refreshes life itself, that, 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 that narcotic of love. And that same kind of thing is what possesses us to take wild risks in life, invest in something that doesn't exist, build a product that has never been there, hire people and pay them before you've ever been paid. I mean, that is a form of, of beautiful insanity. Um, and, and that's what I would describe love as. So you almost answered my next question, but I want to ask it to see if there's anything more to add, because 
I work with a lot of people who want to imagine new products in the software realm. And there's always a lot of misconceptions about what we're doing. And even we have misconceptions about kind of where we fit into business and into the market as a whole. Um, it's sometimes if you have a new idea, it's hard to convince your company to let you spend time oh, doing goodness, it, for example. Yeah, right. So uh, when it comes to talking about um, you know, new things, how they're actually made and designed, what do you think is the biggest misconception that people have? Well, the biggest misconception is that it stems from greed. Hmm. And that is just not true. I mean, your profits are kind of a, a reward, a sign, and a symbol of success. But that is not why people get into it. Because uh, you're almost certainly going to lose your money. I mean, that is, the, the data bears this out, you know, like... Like you know, there's other other ways to make money. Yeah, you, there's a lot more secure ways to make um, money than taking a risk in in markets, building new products and stuff. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, the odds are really against you, and so you're really driven not by, not by. Yeah, there's better ways. If you're greedy, there's better ways to go about it. What's really animating it is is a dream. It's that weird desire to make a difference. You can even express it in Nietzschean terms. You know, you really do want to put a dent in the world to, to prove to yourself that you really matter. Um, and, and actually, you've got um, a longing to, uh, to improve the world around you. I mean, it, there is a social, uh, ethical aspiration that comes with entrepreneurship. That is, that's a message I want the people listening to hear. Um, a lot of people in my audience are engineers. They're not all libertarian free market yeah. advocates, but I, th I think they should hear that. So one thing I've noticed about good engineers and good uh, product designers is that, you know, they like to build quality things. Mm -hmm. And it could be, you know, it could be the entrepreneur uh, himself. It could be... Um, you know, but but I'm also thinking like the, the engineers who are tasked with building these things, the designers tasked with building these things, you know, and it could be quality could mean many things. There are a lot of different. It could be the quality in the user experience or the or the back end or something like that. Um, but and I've seen this a few times, maybe some small ways. But if a company analyst comes out and says, you know what, my research indicates that we can just maximize our profits if we just put out a load of crap and then. They think, okay, we'll do that. That's what we'll do. This is a business. We have to maximize profit. And generally, when that what that happens is you kind of get a lot of pushback from the team. The engineers get unhappy. Um, they they quit. Um, so, the, how how do you look at like situations like this where it's it almost seems like um, it almost seems like there's something going on there that's the opposite of what one might expect from a from a, a market. No, situation. I agree with this, and, and of course, be, uh, another beautiful thing about about markets is that they are imperfect. I mean, you you get all kinds of mistakes, but but the real beauty of that is that we're usually punished for our mistakes in, in a market. At least let's just say that markets give the best chance of punishing error. Whereas in public life, public policy, I mean, errors are never punished and they're never reversed. Markets tend to go back again. By, by the way, you know, what you made me think of is, I just, there's a couple of things, examples I want to give. The, the arrival of instant user uh, reviews has, been, has had an unbelievable effect on the marketplace these days. Instant user reviews like... Um, uh, like Google so, reviews or, right. or whatever. Or like Foursquare we built with the reviewing restaurants and things like that. So, oh, yeah. you can't believe what a difference that's made. 
Like I have a I, friend in. Uh, I use them today in finding lunch in oh, town. It's just <laughs> astonishing, and young people are far more likely to use these things than I do. But um, like for me, I just kind of like you know, if, if a movie looks good, I go to it. But friends of mine, they would never go to the movie without checking Rotten Tomatoes first. But there's other things that happen, like. Like nowadays, it's much easier to get comped for your meal in restaurants because of this problem. I mean, they will do anything to avoid even one negative review. So if you go in, you know, and you order a thirty-four dollar uh, Chilean sea bass, and the potatoes are cold, and you complain to the waiter, "Hey, my potatoes are cold. Yeah, I don't want to even pay for this meal." <laughs> the waiter will go to his boss, and the boss will say, "Comp him." It's like what? So you're just going to let the guy have the food for free? Yep. It's worth it for us to lose that $34 to avoid a negative review. I mean, it's just amazing. And Amazon reviews are but, overwhelming. It's just, it's changed the way the market. But the, that happened to my, with my cousins at their party at a steakhouse a couple of years ago. And they comped us because everything we asked for was out. And then they just paid the full price anyway. And we said, hey, that's the tip, you know. It's, it's I cool. Know. It's like, it's, yeah. Know. But, <laughs> it's like, but, we were too hard on you. It's <laughs> like all of humanity has been looking forward to the times when every single consumer can write one review and broadcast it out to billions of people. I mean, that's really yeah, yeah. It's amazing. And how that's made the market so much more responsive is incredible. But I do want to say one more thing about the, the point about quality. And it's just simply that we don't always know what that is. It doesn't right. always come down to longevity, and it doesn't always come down to design. There's, there's other things that people want besides uh, just longevity and prettiness and, and efficiency and that sort of thing. Like, um, and I always uh, like to use the example of shoes. Like, people complain that shoes don't last long as long as they used to. Uh, but you know what? The price of shoes has plummeted over the last 30 years. And what I think we've discovered in the shoe market is that people would prefer to pay less for shoes and wear them not as long, or maybe even just wear them a few times in the case of many women's shoes, hmm. and have more of them. And so they don't want them to be super extraordinarily well-built and therefore very expensive. They so want to buy cheap shoes. It's interesting because like a conspiracy theorist would say, oh, the, the shoe industry is... You know, it's colluded to make us pay for their shoes oh, more it's often. Just, it's, like, this is a, re a, a reaction to markets. Yeah. It really is. I mean, it's the same thing, actually, in the clothing industry. We don't really want a suit that's going to last 30 years. We want a suit yes, yeah, that we're going to wear twice a year for five years, and it's going to fall apart. And so the markets are giving us what we want. And the important thing is that, that we, you can't, from the outside, judge. Like an engineer is sometimes the worst judge of yeah. what the product should be. Uh, for Sometimes, that reason, because yeah. there's other considerations besides design, other things besides longevity, other things besides having the perfect cruffless code, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I've seen situations, so of like the one I described, I've seen situations where, okay, the analyst says some, one thing, and, and no, the engineers actually do have kind of a, an intuition that the that, that are not baked into the numbers and kind of have to fight with that. But I've also seen cases where engineers want to make things perfect and that's not the way to they go so it depends on it, it it i've seen it go both ways i think oh sure well you know back in the early days um i've seen cases where everyone's wrong that's yeah, sure. really, yeah. uh, but you know in the in the early software in the software wars wars of the of, of the of mid 1990s when um <clears throat> you know in the course of five years when word processing went from just a single disk you, you stuck into your your computer without a hard drive 
to um, to this you know fierce competition between WordStar and WordPerfect, and the the programs got bigger yeah, yeah. and bigger and bigger. And then Microsoft comes along and says, "Hey, oh, you you want a you want a word processor? Here's this Word. This yep. is a gigantic, crafty program that took up tons of space, and all the engineers were super upset about it." And everybody was denouncing uh, Microsoft, and the same thing with with Explorer. Actually, it's the same thing with uh, with um, the the operating system, Windows ninety five or whatever. The, all the engineers and the coders were against it because it wasn't clean code. It was full of cruft. It was really boggy. And it was really heavy, and it took up uh, far more space. And every software engineer said, oh, "I could build something that's like a fraction as big, much more clean." But guess what? The markets wanted the thing that Word offered, which is a lot of. I mean, I didn't particularly like it. I actually like the cleaner, more efficient yeah. code of the pre. Of well, the early, I don't know. I, yeah, but the word outcompeted everybody because it was trying to give consumers what they wanted. So the engineers, software engineers that saw that and were sensitive to the market needs, were all ultimately more successful than those who just emphasized cleanliness and uh, uh, neatness and the uh, least and the most efficient solution possible. And by the way, this, um, since we're talking about this, this is what concerns me about Bitcoin, actually, because it is, you know, it's an open source uh, uh, protocol, but the people who are involved in constructing it have like a maniacal, and they always have, I even Hmm. wrote this back in 2013, a maniacal emphasis on efficiency and scalability and uh, a distribu- scalability of, I shouldn't say scalability, like the broadest possible distribution of nodes, you know, the, yeah, at the expense of scaling, right? So, and so the uh, one megabyte uh, block size limit was something that became like a dogma in this crowd. Just be, And not because I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't think it's like the conspiracy of the hodlers or whatever. I think it was, it, it was just software engineers who just love clean, the cleanest possible code, hmm. the lightest yeah. possible um, load. You know, it's like a geek obsession. But you know, if 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 Microsoft had followed the principles, we never we would be nowhere near where we are today. Interesting. I think. I mean, as an engineer, I kind of the um, the multi layer architecture that they're asking for. It kind of makes sense to me. I know it might take a few years to build but i i think oh, you mean with the lightning network yeah and yeah and stuff. all that it does it, it, it makes perfect sense but like a few years it's been going on for three years and meanwhile yeah. there are users out there right who, who have actual you need, needs you need a and, short-term solution yeah <laughs> and, and and contrary to what people say people do use this stuff and do need this yeah. stuff and i and I, you know i could give you a model and story about people in the, in the third world and so on but also um i you know I, I don't want to send. I I, I like to distribute uh, cryptocurrency to to people who haven't used it before. I think it's really important. I'm not going to pay five dollars to send fifty cents. Yeah, that's yeah, just that's... crazy. You know, it's like wait, why why would I do that? So what it means is, like, the more expensive it is, the slower it is, the less adoption you're going to have. So how how do you get someone who doesn't know anything about it? Like, do you ask them to download a certain wallet on their phone, or yeah. do they yeah? Yeah. So, uh, so, and this any, is really, yeah. really important because you can't really like. I can always tell the difference between an owner and a non-owner yeah. based on the nature of the questions. Like, people come to me all the time as we're going on for years. Like, man, eh, what is this crypto thing? And I'll try to explain it. They keep asking all these these goofy questions. Actually, that doesn't usually happen. What happens is people pretend like they know it, but they're asking questions and they have a level of skepticism that just like tips me off that oh. You don't actually own it. And so I'll stop the conversation and say, I've done this for years. Wait, do you, do you hold any? No. Would you like to? 
Sure. <laughs> and then that's when the fun starts. And yeah. once it happens, once they get it, it triggers something psychologically and they become like excited. Yeah. And then they're calling me for days like, ah, oh, wow, it went up. Oh my God, it went down. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're it's doing like that. Waking up in the middle of the night, even if it's only yeah. $5, they wake up at 2 a.m. Did it go up or down? <laughs> yeah. It, it does. It gets exciting. Like, because you could open your app and you see if your money went up or down. It's so fun. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but now it's, it's harder to do that now. Which, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. I get, I've gotten criticized. Like, it's craziest things happen to me. Like, I, I was on the J- Jason Stapleton program, and he's one of these crypto skeptics, I believe. It. And so I said, would you like some? Sure. Well, now, it was really during the height of the, the scaling problem. I think it was 2017. I could not send him uh, Bitcoin. It's embarrassing. Yeah. Now he probably... <laughs> And he so, went back and and he so, probably now is uh, and so I, even and more so Here's Bitcoin. So I, I, I had him download, download uh, the Bitcoin.com wallet because it's really easy to use and yeah. I like it. And this is the same wallet that uh, PayPal uses. Anyway, he downloaded it and I sent him Bitcoin Cash because it was cheap and fast. Yeah. You know, because like, what else am I going to do? Right. And, and so then he goes on Twitter and says, oh, wow, Jeffrey Tucker gave me Bitcoin. Now, now did I explain to him in that moment, no, this is Bitcoin cash. Oh, like, God. No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't go into it because it's, like, yeah. it's already crazy enough, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And so he's like, oh, Jeffrey Tucker gave me uh, uh, Bitcoin. Here's my address. I see where this is going. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, here's my address. And so sure enough, you know, toxic crypto, crypto yeah. Twitter sphere went nuts. Oh, he gave you a fake coin and so on and so on and so on. I mean, can you see it being any other way, though? I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I guess, I guess, you know, it's what's funny about the culture of crypto is that when the price is falling... Uh, the Twitter sphere gets far less toxic. Everybody just kind of calms down and says, eh, yeah, life kind of sucks, doesn't it? Yeah, mm. it does. And then when it goes up again, it's like everybody comes out again fighting and killing each other and slugging each other to death, you know. Yeah. So I get roped into this, um, you know, the, the hysterical attacks on uh, altcoins all the time, what we used to call altcoins. But it's not really, it's not really fair to me. I mean, I'm just looking for an easy way to get people to adopt also. Uh, when I use crypto, and I, and I do, um, I like to use a coin that's, that's easy to spend. So it's actually cheaper to convert uh, your BTC to BCH, send that, mm. than it is to use uh, straight out BTC. Interesting. All right. So I said last year that uh, you know, we've been in a little bit of a malaise when it comes to consumer apps. I feel like yeah. 10 years ago is a great time. All new app coming out every week. And it's a great time for crypto. But when it comes to like social and mobile, um, both those things, everybody has kind of a bad taste right now. And I want to play a clip from episode 66 with Foursquare founder Dennis Crowley about the goals he was seeking in his product design and falling into the traps set by the rest of the industry. You know, I think that the, the number one habit the number one thing, and we we've done this. We've done this in the past when we were very focused on consumer apps. Um, is you know engineering apps to be super sticky, yeah. right? And I remember doing this because everyone else was doing it before we put a stop to it and saying like, no, no, no. The goal is not to have people spend ten minutes in our app every session. Right. The goal is to get people in to get them and then to get them out very quickly and get them out with an idea of what they're going to do and then push them to that place. You know, like the metric for success for us as product designers was never like how many minutes can we occupy someone's day? And it was more like 
how many places can we push people to? How many new places did we send someone to, you know, in the, over the course of a week or something like that? And I think, you know, the stuff that, and I think people are starting to understand this now, like products when they're optimized, like scientifically optimized to keep people using them all day long, like, you know, engineers have gotten very good at that. Endless feeds, notifications all the time, things that drag you back in. And I, I generally, you know, I'm kind of over that phase of apps. All right. Yeah. So that was um, what Dennis told me a few weeks ago. Um, I'm hoping to help this guy build some new stuff over the next couple of years as I rejoin Foursquare. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff to break down here. I know you've written about all the notifications and stuff that we're getting um, right. Well, it's I've changed my mind about about a lot of these things really over yeah, the last t- couple of years because I used to be I wrote this book called Beautiful Anarchy, and it was just like yep. this 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 wild celebration. I think, I think of, I've read it, but it's been yeah, a while. It's a wild celebration of every single application you can think of and how they're just like making us so happy in our lives and so on and so on, and about how we're gonna we're gonna curate our own cultures for ourselves. It was like over the top. It was so. Uh, uh, extreme that the Pope actually attacked it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> By name. Um, but anyway, so a lot of the predictions in there, though, I've sort of... It's, I wouldn't say they failed to materialize, but let's just say that there, there turns out to be a downside. Um, the the amount of mind space that is being occupied by these social applications in our lives and all the various notifications we get has become really outrageous to the point that it's actually... Um, I would say diminishing the quality of our lives, and I think surveys show this, right? I mean, people who spend a, live their lives on Facebook are extremely depressed, mm. and and uh, like you're, we're sitting over here in this house right now. You might not know this, but we have a house rule that there is we don't allow uh, smartphones to be used uh, publicly. Yeah, in in any kind oh, of social. Sorry, I no, no, but in, <laughs> no, no. I mean, have mine over there too. But in any kind of social situation. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, gotcha. like cocktail yeah. hour before dinner, during dinner, uh, drinks after dinner. You know, all these kind of social situations. You can use a smartphone, but you have to go into another room, right. To okay. use it. That makes sense. And the reason is that that it's it's ruining our social environments. I mean, it's like if if you're bored with something that. You should check yourself. Any, not you in particular, but anyone should. What happens to us is if anything's happening to us and around us that's even slightly less interesting than we want it to be, yeah. we suddenly just pull on our phone. And, and I have that problem, and I'm guaranteed, I am not guaranteed, I am I'm determined to fix it. Oh, it's, and it's a hard habit to break, but yeah. it's so insulting to everybody around yeah, you. Yeah. And we, you know, what's happening is, what's, what's happened is we have. We've, we're only now constructing a kind of consistent social etiquette of the use of our smartphones and our technology. It's, 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 it's very late in the day, but we're just now figuring it out. I remember when cell phones first came along, you go into restaurants and there's always be some guy talking loudly on the phone. And you're like, what a jerk. Well, that doesn't really happen anymore. And I think it's going to be the same way with these kind of uh, public uh, use of, of cell phones in social situations. I think people are going to stop... And what we're seeing more of is people are curating their notifications. So it's like, do I really need to know every single time somebody likes yeah. an Instagram photo of mine? <laughs> you know? Yes. And, and so in the future, I think what we're seeing, we're seeing it right now. I've and, even started deleting things that I check. Like I check my uh, podcast stats all the time. Yeah. I'm like, do I need to know how many I got this hour or can I wait till I get home? Like, yeah, I know. I I, it's, we're yeah. getting better at it. And I think yeah. in the future... Uh, this, I think this gentleman's exactly right. That is not going to be a thing. I think I think consumers are figuring out the racket. 
Yeah. And and are fed up with it. I mean, 10 years ago, if somebody had said, here's a proposal for all of humanity, how about um, two-thirds of your life is drained away just looking at dumb things online? Almost everybody would say, what? That sounds like the worst thing I've ever heard. Yeah. But this is what we've come to. Yeah. And we're going to see, I predict, a huge backlash against this. We're going to tame the use of these uh, notifications, this technology in our lives, to make them genuinely useful again. <clears throat> and stop being tricked by this, uh, uh, by this, by this, this scam. To, to, well, for example, even now, uh, my iPhone is alerting me to how much online time I've had uh, yeah. every week, which I actually appreciate. And so what do, we, do we want to have more of that? No. The goal is to have less. You know? Yeah. That's the new ethos of these apps. So what you want are apps that are extremely useful in your life, that add value, rather than drain away your uh, mind space and your attention and actually make you less creative, less productive. Yeah. Here's, here's what I hope. So... With Foursquare, it's, you know, we uh, got into this situation where, yes, we were following the industry and doing some of that, um, some of that, uh, um, what do you call it, casino stuff yeah. a little bit. But then we pulled back. We asked ourselves, no, is this exactly what, you know, what, what the, the, what's good for people? No, it's not. We pulled back, but then you can't really say that we won in the market. A lot of other <laughs> companies that didn't pull oh, back sure. won. And so... I'm hoping, just because Facebook's been winning for the last 20 years in Google, I'm hoping there's some kind of t inflection yes, point I at some point. it's surely going to happen. Uh, I mean, we've yeah. got to get away from traffic as the only metric. Yeah. We've got to have other ways to understanding whether we're succeeding or failing. Now, there's, there's a double-edged sword here because, of course, you know, if the tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, who cares, right? I mean, so if you build the perfect application that nobody uses and nobody knows to use or hears about, then that's a problem. And so you've got to get out there and get some attention for yourself and build up a network of followers in order to have a successful company. But yeah. but you don't want to take a, a cheap way. Like, I'm the uh, editorial director of the American Institute of Economic Research, which for, for, for like 40 years we've been a little bit sleepy. And so I'm really trying to wake, wake, wake us up and get the brand out there and get people reading our content and that sort of thing. But, but at the same time, and, and there are easy ways to do that, right? There's uh, clickbait headlines. There's all sorts of paid, paid boosts, you know, that are politi politically provocative. and that kind of, I decided not to do that. Um, um, like your friend, I'm really investing myself in this idea of integrity. And I want uh, our consumer base to come to trust what we're saying and to really uh, feel as if we're a refuge from the insanity of the online world where they can actually get objective, clear, coherent, intelligently um, uh, argued observations about the world that actually enlighten people. And I'm, I'm banking on that as being my long-term solution. I hope so. I mean, that's sort of what I'm trying to do with this podcast. I, I want to be, well, not exactly, but like I want it to be, I think about two things. Like, A, is this entertaining? Is this someone people, something people will actually listen to? But B, are they going to be better off after listening to it than before listening to that's it. That's a great doesn't have to be, Yeah, it doesn't have to be the number one podcast in the world, but that's sort of the approach to product development. That I, I think, think that's right. That, and what that means is putting uh, up front something that you actually can't measure, hmm. which is integrity. Hmm. I mean, for which there is no substitute. And so you have to like look within. Um, am I behaving with integrity? Am I giving users something that they that makes their lives better? Is is my product making the world a more lovely, beautiful place? 
These are the kinds of questions we need to ask ourselves. And and the, 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 again, there's no there's no business metric you can point to that's going to tell you whether that's true. You have to look within yourself at your own sort of personal moral formation and say, am I doing something I'm really proud of? And hmm. in the long run, I think that, you know, I have to believe that in the long run, even though the, the scammy people can win in the short run, in the long run, it's going to be the products built on integrity and consumer usefulness and um, social consciousness that are ultimately going to prevail in the marketplace. Yeah, so this next question, I hope, well, this, we can do a whole hour on this next one, but <laughs> maybe we shouldn't. But I, another aspect of that is what about the degradation of our online interactions? I mean, you mentioned crypto Twitter. That's not even the worst corner of Twitter. Oh. Uh, you know, it's particularly around politics, which I think is happening worldwide. It's a, something, is this something we're always going to have to deal with? Is there kind of going to be a path to learning how to respond to... We're going through that like, right now. You We're know, learning right now. You know, I mean, everybody's learning how to respond thing. to trolls, how to yeah. respond to because there's not just one way to respond to trolls. There are all different kinds of trolls, uh, you know, and it's um, or, or to prevent them from taking over the platforms, either by yelling loudly or in some cases, the employees of the platform are like, OK, this kind of speech is allowed. So I feel like there's there's attacks from above and attacks from below on just okay. having good conversations and. Um, well, you know, it's a problem we should have anticipated, actually, in retrospect. Yeah. Like in the old days, in the, by which I mean maybe the early 2000s, I was running all kinds of internet forums. And yes. these forums had, you know, oh, 300 users, 500 users, 1,000 users, yeah. 2,000 users. And it took, it was a major part of my life to spot a troll and ban them. You know, and yeah, even conver- then, yeah. yeah, keep conversations. Uh, on on track that that was a big job. Now, you take that problem and expand it to millions and then billions. I mean, of course, you're going to have a massive uh, problem on your hands, and we've got to figure out the technologies to to, to deal with it. And it has to come from the uh, the owners of the spaces first of all, because their interest is in maximizing the value of their venue for their for their most responsible customers. And 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 if every third communication you get on that venue is from a Nazi, then, you know, people are going to start leaving. So in their own interest, they have to, they have to figure it out. It's not going to happen through algorithms either. This can help, but ultimately it's a, it's a judgment call. But, 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 but also there has to be uh, some adaptation on the part of consumers themselves. Like I think every user of Twitter has learned to recognize which interactions to take seriously and which ones not to, you know, you look for things like, um, are you using your real name? Is there <clears throat> the blue check mark issue? And then there's the uh, you know how many followers do you have? How recently did sure. you join? Yeah, you and look. These at that. are all these things. And then also, but I, I almost it's almost annoying if, if you look at someone and you say, oh, okay, this guy has ten followers and it's a troll. It's like, oh, this person just took even thirty seconds of my time. I know. Why? You know? Yeah, I know. How it's- is that? It's very troubling. And also, we're much more hurt by negative interactions than we are rewarded by positive ones. Yeah. And I can tell you this as uh, um, uh, I, I spent years in the, music, in the music world. And I can just tell you that, you know, after a concert and there's a long line of people coming up to you and there's, uh, there's 500 people that come up to you and say, you performed magnificently tonight. You've never sounded more beautiful. That was the best uh, performance I think you've ever given. Um, you're my model and ideal of a performance artist. And you get these interactions. And then one person comes up, one, will come up to you and say, 
you know, you know, it wasn't your best night. <laughs> yeah, that's that's all you remember. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah, you, then you think, oh, well, that's only a person telling the truth. And, and so, I think everybody, yeah. It's, so it's rough. It's rough out there, especially like in. You know, I try to say I mean, I, interesting, yeah. sincere things online, yeah. but people criticize me all the time. But ultimately, you have to go thick skin. Ultimately, yeah. I mean, some somewhere around 2012, maybe a little earlier on Facebook, and you noticed, oh, people are butting into my conversations. Maybe I shouldn't have this conversation publicly because people are like, you know, people just insert themselves, and it's like, oh, that's that's a strange thing to do. You wouldn't walk up to someone that you overheard and be like, hey, you know, you're you're real for saying that you know, like just on the street I mean it's that's what Twitter is like it really is and and, and we've had to get used to it I, th- I think there's the fix is going to come I mean yeah. that's why I say the markets do adapt and this is the worst thing about the online world right now is it's, it's, it's tendency to sort of bring us down and make us sad and, and wow it's not something I, I anticipated when I wrote Beautiful Anarchy but now that it's happening I'm very curious to see all the ways in which we're figuring out how to do with this. And of course, it inevitably gives rise to, oh, they're censoring me, and so on and so on. But well, yeah. on the other hand, it incentivizes uh, new entrepreneurs to create new pipes, you know, and, and people are going fi- to figure it out. It's, I have every confidence that it's all going to work out in the long run. I hope so. Maybe we could talk in five, ten years yeah. and see what happens. <laughs> um, the one thing I have written down here that, that I have to mention in the new book is the uh, the chicken stick story because I was laughing so hard when I read that and I had to tell everyone about it. <laughs> I, there's a lot of stuff that like anyone can relate to. So what... I assume this really happened. It did really happen. It really did happen. I was so, I was really hungry at the airport bar, yeah. and the guy next to me had ordered uh, like six pieces of chicken. I hope I'm not contradicting the details. Of the 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 book the the version of the book is is accurate, but I'm just now kind of recreating it in my mind. But. Um, I, I didn't want to order off the menu because it was right. uh, too expensive. So the the guy next to me gets up and goes away. But he left, you know, um, like three chicken sticks, um, perfectly intact, right next to me on the plate. And it was like six inches away from me. And I'm desperately hungry. And I'm thinking, look, there is no reason in the world why I couldn't just reach over and eat those chicken Right. Sticks. He wasn't, wasn't touched. <laughs> he wasn't touched. It was perfectly clean. Now, uh... It was funny because I, I was sitting there thinking, wait a minute, can I eat something I didn't pay for? Now, what is the property rights status of those chicken sticks at that moment? Now, he paid for them, so he technically owns them, but he walked away from them, so they're like locking an abandoned property, right? <laughs> it was like, it's, a, like an unhomesteaded resource. If I remember correctly, the ending was he thought about it too hard and lost the chicken stick. Is that what yeah, happened? Yeah, what happened. Yeah, that's, like, I couldn't bring that's myself. A, that's an important lesson. I couldn't Just take the chicken stick. <laughs> I couldn't bring myself to eat them for some reason because I was obsessed with this. It's like going back to my lock and Hume and evolved uh, rules. And wait a minute, what about the venue? I mean, it, it, I implicitly signed a contract not to eat another customer's yeah. food when I came in here. And I was so obsessed with this that uh, then next thing you know, the waitress came along and uh, t- took them and, and, and dumped them in the trash. And I was like, yeah. what a waste. <laughs> You have a bunch of articles about these like situations that are fuzzy. Yeah. Like I remember there was one a while ago with the with the Olive Bar. Yeah, that was, uh, you know I had this experience just last night. Uh, a graduate student here and I were talking about property rights and 
and emergent norms and that sort of thing. And I just said in passing, I said, well, even now, I mean, there's a lot of property rights that are ambiguous. And he goes, oh, yeah, like what? And I said, well, like the olive bar at the grocery store. He goes, wait, why is that ambiguous? And I said, well, have you ever, you know, eaten an olive from the olive bar? He goes, yeah. <laughs> and I said, do you consider it theft? He goes, yeah. It probably was. <laughs> and, he, and I said, but well, did you buy some olives after you ate that olive? He goes, well, I did. And I said, well, how do you know then that the, the grocery store didn't actually want you to try it? I mean, after mm. all, you're sitting in front of the olive bar. They have 13 different kinds. You don't know what anything what it tastes like. Yeah. And, and it's so simple. Nobody's looking. You could just reach up and stick one in your mouth and find out. How do you know that they actually don't want you to steal from the olive bar? And then have you feel a sense of guilt for having done it, and that incentivizes you to buy it, so you can you know, later uh, uh, some vacuum your conscience. So, so like maybe this is all built in. The ambiguity of the property rights are built into the structure of the system. And really, he had no answer. He's like, wow, I never thought about that. <laughs> I think the lesson that I take away is embracing ambiguity can actually be fun. Yeah. It, like, it doesn't have to be all this scary. Yeah, that's uh, right. That's uh, right. And, and, and also, there's another thing. The businesses, there's all kinds of businesses. And, and our marketing tactics, our strategies, even issues of <clears throat> mine and thine and ownership and everything, that can also be very... Um, you know, subject to change, and the world is a complicated, surprising, wonderful, interesting place, and commerce is mainly what makes it so. All right. Well, I we could probably talk for hours and hours, but uh, I'm going to give us give give the listeners one hour today. Okay. So, uh, do you have any last thoughts on the conversation we had today, and where can people go to find? More sure. of your writing. Um, I would just say that one of the things I was most delighted about the conversation, thank you for bringing in the engineering point and the difference yeah. between entrepreneurship and engineering. I think that is really profound, and I hope that your listeners really reflect on that. Uh, yeah, well, one of the things I, I thought about coming into this is like, okay, what, what questions can I ask that's kind of in between the stuff you talk about and the stuff yeah. I talk about? Well, I think about. that's so, a really yeah. interesting topic. You know, the world can't be built by engineers, and it can't be built without them. Yeah. So it's a really fascinating thing, the relationship there. So uh, um, I love this idea. I'm probably going to get an article out of it, actually. So thank you. I have, I'm in, in your debt for bringing that up to me. And I'll probably, if you want to write that article, I'll have some examples maybe oh, that's, I'll send you. That's really exciting. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm really intrigued by this topic, which gets to the core yeah. of F.A. Hayek's writings. But anyway, my writing, you can mostly find it um, every day at the American Institute for Economic Research, which is AIER.org. And um, I before E. Okay. Yeah, right. A- I- <laughs> you got to make sure I get that right. And then, uh, then my Twitter handle is Jeffrey A. Tucker. So. Jeffrey A. Tucker. All right. Great. Jeffrey Tucker, thanks for coming on the thanks show. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Show notes for this one are on localmaxradio.com slash 75. One quick correction on my end. So City Bike is not based in Montreal. I don't know where I got that from. I think that Montreal just had a bike share before New York City. Maybe it was modeled off of that. But um, I don't know. It's possible they had one in Montreal too. But it's actually today, City Bike is owned by the rideshare company Lyft. So that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, City Bike is actually a good example to dive further into one of these days, I think, because I can remember when it came out in 2013 and it wasn't quite ready for prime time. There weren't a lot of bikes. They didn't know how to, 
you know, rejigger them. And then they expanded and they fixed some issues, but now new issues are coming up. Uh, but I have to say, when I take city bike, it's way more dependable than the subway system, for sure, in New York City. The only problem is, obviously, it's like it's slower to get there versus the subway when it works. So the subway when it's not working, I don't know. But um, it's slower on normal operation, and it's also, of course, weather-dependent. And, you know, you can't use the bike to get everywhere every day. But for, for what it is, it's, it's pretty great. Uh, it also occurred to me when we were discussing the Beautiful Anarchy book that what was – it was really about all the great app and and all the great apps and all the great tech that was coming out around 2008 to 2013 you know right at the turn of the decade as we switched to mobile and that stuff really was you know a, a huge deal i think what happens is that the market finds something that works and then you know people take those answers to a more and more absurd degree until something becomes broken and that's what actually gets people motivated to kind of find a new paradigm. So you can say that we followed the social and mobile revolution to its conclusion, and then we've reached a local maximum, of course. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future. Now, as my trip to Ukraine approaches, I'm going to check in with my usual co-hosts and guests so that I have a few shows for you uh, as I am traveling abroad, although I might do a show there. We'll see. Uh, depends. Got to fill things out. Depends. Uh, next week, I'm going to talk to Aaron uh, again about, um, you know, does Google manipulate its search results? Are they trying to influence the U.S. election or not? What does that mean for the future? And I want to check in again with Miriam Ali one more time as a guest to find out how a software engineer became a world champion in foosball, uh, in competitive foosball. That's a thing. And that's something that's Interesting. So we're gonna find we're gonna find that out. All right. So don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app and keep listening. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show. Send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.